part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open the Bible, your Bibles to Philemon. It's uh, there at the end of... Uh, it's so on one page, more than likely. If, again, I showed you last week, if, if this is your Bible, and you have your Bible with you this morning, it's going to be all the way there in the back. It's right there by Hebrews, right before Hebrews. It's a small letter. It's not really so much a book as it is a letter that was very, very personal in nature. And to, to kind of put your head around why Paul wrote this, uh, we see a lot of details. But one of the things that we began to introduce last week is that it really is for this kind of show us marks of maturity. You know, everywhere you look there in our society, well, you find marks of maturity for humanity. For a guy, it may be, you know, when he starts to get that little peach fuzz on his face, and you're, okay, he's not a little boy anymore. And then he has to start shaving. You know, maybe it's that time that your, your little one starts to say ABCs or maybe even does some math. You know, can do even division. You're going, that's a mark of maturity because you know that their mind is starting to work on that intellectual level that they can actually have this concept that six divided by three equals two. It's kind of complex when you're just, you know, four or five years old. But when they can start to do division, even simple division, you're going, wow, what a mark of maturity. My daughter today, 21 years old. In the world, they, they would say 21 years old. That's a mark of maturity. You know, somehow we've picked 21 as this place of you know, some kind of a mark of maturity. We have all around this, brother. We have, folks, we have them in all these other aspects of our life, physically. We have them intellectually. We could even say that we have them emotionally. But do you know that there really are marks of maturity, of spirituality? Not where God gives us more favor or that we gain the favor of God because of something that we did. He says, no, you know, as you grow more and more in Christ, there are really are marks of maturity that just start showing and reflecting in a truer fashion as you look into that mirror that, that Christ is reflected in your life. That's what this letter is all about. It really isn't about rules and fashions and demands and this, that, and the other. It is not about religion whatsoever. It is about relationship. And in church, you know, we're kind of famous for saying that. Well, it's not about religion. It's all about relationship. But do you really understand the depth of that? Because I know that we can do the mantra of that. I know that we can say those words. But do you really get what that means? Because down deep, guys, we have kind of a fondness for religion. We like to know what the rules are, kind of keep the rules, and we even kind of feel good about ourselves when we keep the rules. And so there's this pull, this tendency, even with us who are authentic believers that really desire the fullness of Christ in our lives, there is a pull toward religion. Why? Because religion's kind of in our hands. Our grip, our ability to do what Christ has called us to do. Relationship, on the other hand, <laughs> that can get tricky. Because any honest Christian who has walked with Christ whatsoever will tell you that there's days that you're going, just take me up right now, Lord, this is really good. And then there's other days going, God, get out of my life. I mean, not in a way that, you know, you don't believe the cross, you don't believe in salvation, you don't believe, you know, in all that, but just that place that you just... Yeah. You just, your spiritual level is not negative, but it's like .001, okay? Any Christian, any authentic, honest Christian is going to tell you, there's, man, we're, just, we're on this roller coaster of relationship. And so religion gives us kind of this barometer of, okay, man. See, see, what I can do with religion is even if I'm not doing really well, 
I can just start hanging out with Dustin. Then I feel good about myself. And, and I only say that because <laughs> and, and, and I only say that because I know he can take it and he knows I'm kidding. But you know what we do? Isn't that see that's what religion does, guys. We find somebody who's misbehaving more than we are, and we say, oh, at least I'm not as bad, fill in the blank. That's religion. That's not relationship. I mean, I mean that would be going up to my wife and said, well, I, I know you're kind of sad about this or you're mad about this, but there's another husband that has done it ten times. That's going to make her feel better, really? That, that's the, you know, no, that's religion. That's not relationship. She wants the purity of the relationship that we have. And so I want you to understand it because we're going to hit it again. And here's my fear. I told Carly last week, I said, do you think that I get this whole rule-following, Christ-following thing? Do you think they hear it too much? Do you think they just kind of, you know, it, it's, it's boring to them? But guys, I want you to capture that because it is the heart of Christianity. It is the heart of the New Testament. And if we don't capture that as the heart of the whole New Testament message of what Christ has come, then we simply are following a religion rather than being involved in life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you will hear it a lot from me. I hope that I'm never boring in the sense that you think it's just the same drove week after week after week. And yet, Corley helped me. My, my wonderful wife helped me. She goes, well, Bobby, it is the message, but you're always looking at different passages, and the passages are saying it. In other words, she really helped me because I feel like I'm preaching the same thing over and over and over again. And yet, no matter where we look, we open up the Word of God, and that is that redeeming message. So is the redeeming message of this relationship with Christ instead of religion constant throughout the New Testament? Yes, it is. And really, I would even go to, as far as to say it's in the Old Testament too. We just don't see it as clearly before the work of Christ. We see everything pointing to this time of relationship. And we would kind of say, you know, the Old Testament looks a little bit more, you know, religious in nature than relationship in nature. And when you really begin to look at it, it's just as relationship-oriented. But the New Testament, oh, without a doubt, relationship-oriented. Why? Because Christ has come. The perfect one sent of God has lived and died and rose again for our sins. And so everything is different. Everything is different. And that's what Paul is writing about. And last week we started in the middle. We said this week we're going to go back to the beginning. And next week we'll go kind of uh, to, to the end of Philemon. And here's where we were last week, just to refresh you. Philemon chapter 1, it's only got one chapter, verse 8 and 9. Accordingly, this is Paul writing to Philemon. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. He says basically, okay, Philemon, you're a Christian, you're a believer in Christ, and there's a right and wrong kind of choice before you. There, there's a, a way that you could go with this or with that. You could justify your rights and you could handle it one way by the law. There's another one that really takes the supremacy of the love of Christ and handles it another way. You've got a choice before you. And basically what Paul is saying right here, by apostolic authority, Paul was kind of the, you know, he and Peter are the two leading guys after Jesus ascends. You know, if Paul walked in the room, you would know it. Peter walks in the room, you would know it. John walks in the room, you would know it. These are kind of the three guys that are leading this push of Christianity in the New Testament. So Paul says, by apostolic authority, because of who I am 
not in something I've attained, but what God is, how he's appointed me, I could force you to do this. But I don't want to do that. I, mean, I want you to make this decision about how you're going to handle this particular situation on the basis of love and not the law. This morning we're going to look a little bit more into that. And I'm going to try to give you a couple of illustrations that will kind of capture that principle so that we can put that principle into our lives. That principle is basically, do we conform to external conformity or by internal transformation? It's going to be the biggest question of your Christian life, I promise you guys. I promise you. In this picture, this very simple picture, The green arrows are external things that said this is the right way to do it. This is the wrong way. And and those right things are right. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness or lie. There's a lot of external commands that God has given us that are their law, but they're right. We see something happen in this relationship with Christ. Christ comes in and the Bible says he took out this old heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh. There's an actual life change. Now, you didn't, I, I was telling that to a little boy one day, and you have to be careful with kids that are seven or younger because they're very literal. And all of a sudden, he did not want Christ in his heart as I began to explain that. Do you wonder why? He did not want to go to the hospital and have them take out the old heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He was literal in his thinking, and when I talked about this new heart, that's all he could imagine. My granddad had to have that. You know, and you know, all he could imagine is this long recovery that his granddad had. External conformity, internal transformation. You will live out your life one of those two ways, one of those being the, the prime motivators. There will be days in our lives that it is simply the external, you know, going on. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a curfew, and uh, I knew that at the end of that night, there was only one, we had kind of a small house, and there was only one way to get back to my bedroom, and that was past my dad's green lazy boy. And my dad was going to be in that lazy boy. And so there was a lot of times, guys, that, that there were temptations out there, and there was a lot of peer pressure to do one thing, and I can always say, no, because my dad's going to be sitting right in that chair and I'm going to have to go right past him. And he's going to know by my actions what I was involved with. Here's the, the simplicity of that. Sometimes my heart wasn't conforming because I was going, man, I just want to do all the right things that Christ could, would do. No, a lot of times I just wanted to kind of blend in with the rest of them. But the fear of my dad and his wrath, now that's not the highest motivation. But sometimes that's the only motivation I had because I didn't have true spiritual maturity of saying, you know, I desire the highest thing, and that is to be like Christ. Now, in those times, I said, you know, I just don't want to disappoint my dad. And there's going to be times in our lives, guys, that you're going to be compelled to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Not just because you're feeling all holy and close to God, but it's just the right thing to do. And maybe even out of fear of what will our Heavenly Father do in, in response. But would you say that that is the mark of mature Christianity? That we live out of fear that somehow if we step out of line, there is a lightning bolt either coming right down on us or really close by us. No. That's not the kind of relationship. Is that really the relationship you want with your kids? 
Now, some of you are going through times where your kids are kind of disobedient. You're going, hey, I'll take anything right now. Fear is a great motivator. You know? and, and we understand that, just like it was for me and my dad. But that's not a mark of maturity. That's just the truth. I was going to pay dearly if my dad caught me doing something that I was not supposed to be doing. And so the fear of that recompense was really what motivated me, not this desire to be pleasing to the Father in heaven that had made me. And so there's our choices before us. And so we're going to be motivated either by the external, the things that we know to be right. Grandma said this. Well, you know, my daddy always said, or the pastor said, all these things that come in, and they can be good truth, or a regenerated heart that truly starts to own this life of Christ that he's invited us to. And we truly start doing what Christ would want us to, not because it's a law that demands it, but because it's the motivation that we want to reflect Christ's likeness in our days. That, folks, and why I hit it week after week in some form or fashion, is really, I, I think, the, the essence of the New Testament. It's the essence of the Christian life. It's what separates Christianity from really every other religion that I know of. Because almost every other religion will say that you conform to rules. Take, take Islamic faith. There's five tenets, pillars of, of Muslim belief. You do these five things, you're a good Muslim. Okay? It's not that Christianity doesn't have some things that we're supposed to do. We have Ten Commandments, we have all that. But, but our performance isn't what gets us this relationship with Christ. You look at almost any other religion... And it's almost all outward, inward. Why? Because they don't have one in that religion that changed the heart. They're saying stuff like this. The change is in you. And they make you really feel good as a human. Because what if the change isn't in me? What if there's a place of forgiveness that I have to come to in my life and I don't have the depth or the ability, or the strength to do that. I don't need the depth of Bobby. I need a Savior that gives me a new heart, a new ability to do something that was totally unable, that I was unable to do before. That's the difference between relationship and religion. That's why Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. It's not outward conformity, external forces. It is an inward change. That's why we see Paul and other New Testament writers doing those familiar verses like 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new what? Creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He didn't say, no, you know, you used to be able to keep five of those Ten Commandments. Now, man, you can get seven of them on good days. He said, no, you're a brand new creation. I took the old, I took the old heart, the old mind, the old focus on self. I took that and I created something brand new. I gave you the very spirit of God within you so that you can act differently, think differently, believe differently, and live differently. And what about this verse? This was our, our vision verse from last year. But it captures that whole New Testament mentality on this. Galatians 2.20. I have been what? crucified with Christ. And when somebody, was crucifixion something that you walked away from? No, you died. Okay, crucifixion, it ends in one place, death. 
So when he's talking about crucified, he's not saying, okay, man, I got you really, really sick or wounded, and then you kind of recovered from that. No, he said, you died. But what happens in that verse? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christians are people who have been made new and are now in the state of process of being transformed mind, heart, in every way possible to to think and act differently. But here's the million-dollar question for us this morning. Just how new is this new life supposed to be? How transforming is the transformed life supposed to be? Transform us on Sunday morning? What about Sunday night? What about Tuesday afternoon? Transform our relationship with other believers? What about transforming our marriage? The very root of our marriage is transformed because Christ now lives in us. What about transformation with our enemies? That one that you haven't spoken to in 5, 10, 15, 20 years because of that word at the family reunion, you know, 15 years ago. I mean, just how transforming is this transformed life supposed to be? A little bit transforming so that we can all smile. How you doing? I'm doing good. I love Jesus. Well, I do too. Are we truly transformed to the very fiber of our beings? That's what we begin to see here. Last week we looked at this three characters, three main characters. Paul, he's the apostle. He's the preacher, man. He's the spiritual authority there. Okay, he's about 60 years old. Uh, in prison. Uh, he's at the twilight part of his ministry, if you want to say, at the end of his life, near the end of his ministry. He has a friend, a very rich friend, by the name of Philemon. Philemon, this is who he wrote the book to. Philemon has done well in life. He's got a lot of money. We don't know what his trade is, but he's been very successful. But he's also come to know Christ. Paul was able to lead him to the treasure of Christ. And Philemon's life is being transformed to the point where not only is you know, he very generous in this giving, but he starts having church actually in his house. They start having life group in his house. And so a lot of the people there, the Colossians, you've heard of them, he, he kind of helps promote that church. Okay, then we have Onesimus. Onesimus was a servant. Let's go ahead and, and please hear my, my heart on this. Really, the Bible would say a slave because a servant was, you get one mindset. And really, at that time, it, it would have been in that culture, in the Roman culture, really would have been much more of a slave than a servant. He runs away. Why does he run away? We don't know exactly. We just know that more than likely, he either took some valuables, took some money. He runs away both for his freedom but also for an opportunity of new life. Where does he run to? Rome thousand miles away. What is his hope? To have new life. As God would have it. <laughs> as God does. As he runs away, he meets this man by the name of Paul. Same Paul that knows Philemon. Paul begins to talk to Onesimus. Onesimus, he, he shares the gospel and the treasure of Christ with him. Onesimus comes to the place he said, you know, I, I came and I ran away a thousand miles thinking that if I could just get out of slavery, if I could just not be a servant anymore, I could be my own man, then I could have new life. And Paul, you, you've introduced me to a new life that I didn't even know existed. And he trusts Christ as his Savior. 
he becomes a Christian. And as they talk, and he becomes a real help to Paul. And as they talk, somehow Philemon's name comes up. And Paul puts two and two together. He's kind of smart that way. And he says, good. And, you know, so you ran away. I, I actually know Philemon. And so he poses to Onesimus. He said, you need to go back. You need to make this right. But before Onesimus goes back, or as he's going back, here's what he does. Paul writes to Philemon, and he begins to write a word of encouragement and a word of challenge. Look what he says, verse 4 and 5. Again, last week we're in the middle, now we're going to the back in the beginning. And he asks basically, in the middle section, forgive Onesimus, and restore him, or, you know, forgive him from running away, forgive him for taking $1,000, $10,000, whatever it was, and re- restore this guy when he comes back. But how did he start? Look at the basis of Paul's asking, verse 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you, my prayers. Because I hear of your love, underline that. If you write in your Bible, I encourage you to do that. It's a workbook. Underwrite that part, your love. I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Some would say, well, he's just buttering him up because, you know, he, he wants a favor. No, he, he points to sincerity in Philemon's life. He said, I hear of your love. And look down at verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, I don't know that Philemon came to jail and kind of sat there by Paul and brought him tea and cookies and stuff. I don't know that he did that a thousand miles away. Where Paul's heart of encouragement and refreshment comes is because he hears that Philemon is really living out this Christian faith. He says, you seem like the real deal. You're not just playing church. You're coming in there, and I hear stories of how other lives are being refreshed by your walk with Christ. He takes these opening seven verses to say, Hello, I appreciate you, but also I notice that you're living for Christ. Now, I want you to watch what happens right after that, okay? Verse 8. What is the first word in your Bible for verse 8? Here in the ESV, it's the word accordingly. If you have the NIV or the New King James Version, it's the word therefore. If you have the King James, it's that poetic wherefore. It just sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? Uh, if you have the Holman uh, Standard Christian, it's the word for this reason. Anybody else have another version? You have another version of the first word of verse 8. You got that. Okay, good. What is Paul doing? Did he butter him up so he could ask a favor? Or did he point out the reality of Philemon's life so that now he can say, look, part of this maturity, part of this transformation, part of thinking new like Christ, here's what I'm asking you. Because it's a big, big kind of, not favor, but a pretty big demand upon Philemon's life. The word accordingly, therefore, for this reason. Do you see the connection of those things? He's writing, he's saying, man, you're a good guy. You love the fellow brothers. You're, you're helping out the church. You're a refreshment. You're motivated by love. 
Now, because of that, accordingly, for this reason, therefore, whatever word you want to put there, he connects what he's going to ask Philemon with this basis of not that Philemon's a great guy, but he has the actions of Christ. And why is he doing that? Because there was laws in those days just like there's laws now. And by law, that external conformity, Onesimus, without a doubt, was guilty. Would you agree with that? Paul knew it. Philemon knew it. And guess who, who else knew it? Onesimus did. You know, all three of them, there would not have been, he's not going to go, well, you know, I'm pleading not guilty because. No, he's, Onesimus is owning up. And that's something we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Do you have to forgive somebody who's not repentant? Where does repentance and forgiveness play, you know, it's part together. But until we get there, Onesimus knew that he was guilty. Everybody else did. Onesimus owed Philemon. Back in those days, you know, he, here he was a servant, and so he would have owed him his service. Plus, let's say that he did steal $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, whatever it was. He owed him from that. There's a legitimate price that was owed back by law to make Philemon right. Look at that last one. It was by law that if there was a runaway servant, a runaway slave, when you caught that person, you could brand them for the rest of their life. Not on their arm, not on their backside, not on their foot, right across the front of their head with what they were. That's the Latin word fugitive. Runaway. And it was by law you could do that. You ran away. The law's on my side. You're guilty as charged. And you are branded for the rest of your life. Even if you come home. Even if you give me the $5,000 back. I can do this. Do you think this was an easy choice for Fred Lehman? I mean, when somebody burns you, are you just able to say, well, you know, Jesus loves me, so I'm going to love them. When somebody really costs you your heart, they cost you sleep, they cost you your peace, when they cost you... Folks, let's not minimize the extremity. This isn't Philemon. Rich guy says, well, you know, I've got a lot of other servants, so it's no big deal. Here's the big deal, if we just want to play this out in real life. He forgives Onesimus, What does every other servant... Now, again, try to get away from the whole slave thing. That was part of the Roman culture. Try to dismiss your mind from, well, that's just not right to begin with. We all agree with that. It was that culture. Understand that. What is at stake here? Every other servant that he has, every other... the, The system that he has. I mean, if I just forgive you, am I just giving a free card for everybody else? Now, again, in our culture, in our mindset, we're going, yes, Philemon, you shouldn't have servants. This isn't right. This isn't Christian. Please try to keep it in the context of what they were really having to face. Just like there's some things that we face today that are in the context of this culture that they didn't face back then. Please don't try to fast forward 2,000 years and make the moral argument here about slavery because that's not really what the, the matter was. I think we're all in agreement, but that is morally wrong. Here's the culture that they and the moral question is, do we reflect Christ at a cost to ourselves 
Or do we forgive like Christ? Do you see the first verses now of Philemon and why he did that? It wasn't buttering up. Paul says, you know, Philemon, I, I don't have a leg to stand on if I just come in here and say, hey, will you forgive this guy? I, I really can't make that case. But when I look at what Christ did for me and he did for you, Philemon, and we were the fugitives, and we were the runaways, and we were the, the, the ones that stole, and we were the ones that were indebted that we could never pay back, when we look at that, Philemon, here's the basis that I come to you on. Not on what Onesimus has done, but on what Christ has done. Therein, folks, we'll get to this in a couple weeks, therein is the only hope of forgiveness when the person that has offense against you or that that you're offended by is no longer around. That person that never got to come back and have actual repentance never was able to come back and say, I'm sorry. Somewhere, are we just left with that ghost for the rest of our life? That father that you know, ran out on mom and left you and the family and the kids to be raised by yourselves in hardship, and yet then dad passed away five, six, seven, eight years later, and he never came back to say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I've, I've repented, I've changed. Repentance, as we will see in a couple of weeks, has a big place to play in forgiveness. Are you stranded? If you have a relationship in your life that has been broken and you're the offended and you've been offended by somebody and then somehow they do not have the opportunity to come back and say, I'm sorry, like Onesimus did, or they refuse to. See, here's the whole thing about labeling somebody fugitive. We think that the offender is the one that we need to brand. But I promise you, in Christ, guys, when we hold on to bitterness, when we hold on to the lack of forgiveness, it is branded right here on our, even though we're the offended, even though we're the ones that got cheated on or this or that, whatever it is, we're the ones, I promise you, that will not be able to walk on without a brand on our head for the rest of our lives. I promise you it will be a shadow there. Save Christ. Save the gospel. Save, save what the miraculous thing that he does. I, I promise that's how it works. And I can tell you person after person after person in these 35 plus years of of counseling how something that happened 30 plus years ago and they will say, to this day, I still struggle with this. It is a hard, it comes to my mind every single day, Pastor. And, And so the question comes down. Let me back up. The question isn't which one of these is real. Is there a real law that could be fulfilled here? Is there a real cost that has come upon Philemon? Yes. And by the reality of the law, could he demand payment and all these other things? Yes. We're not saying that that's fake. We're not saying that it's not real. What we're saying is that there's two different realities going on. One is the reality of the law, and one is the reality of the gospel. And here's where we walk, guys. Here's real Christianity. Take the fluff away. In your life, you're going to be obedient to one of those realities. I promise you, there will be a day in your life, there's going to be days in my life, that the reality is, okay, do I allow this horizontal relationship among people 
govern my life or the vertical relationship of the gospel of who I am in Christ, which one am I going to... Both are realities. How could I ever sit down and counsel with somebody whose dad walked out on them and their family when they were three years old, five years old, six years old, or or somebody who said, yes, I I was physically abused or sexually abused or these things can... Folks, there's harshness in this world. I don't have to tell you. Is Christianity, oh, we just wipe those underneath the rug and we just kind of ignore those? No. This isn't ignoring. It's realizing that there's two realities. That is real. But this is real. The question is, which one's going to rule? If Paul would have made the argument, hey, no big deal. I would have lost some respect for Paul. His argument is not that there's not a reality of the hurt and the cost when somebody offends you. His argument is, in that reality, realize that there is another reality that will come and trump that reality. And if that's not the gospel, folks, if I'm just looking for a better you, on Monday and Tuesday, I might, I might find it. But on Wednesday or Thursday, it may escape you. But here's the hope of the gospel. Christ comes in and he changes that heart. And he says, I'm never leaving. You may get wishy-washy. You may kind of get hot and cold and this, that, and the other. But I'm staying with you forever. I claim you. And I'm not going to brand you fugitive. I'm going to brand you son and daughter of the living our hope. That's Christianity, folks. That's what he is saying here. He comes back and he begins to point this. Look at verse 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he parted. He's talking about Onesimus, this runaway servant. Paul writes to Philemon, For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but what? More than a bondservant is what? The brother. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the choice of Philemon? Do Do you think Philemon is being guilted into this? Do you think he's being apostolically, pastorally pressured into this? Well, a really good Christian would do this. No, go back and what he, look at what he says in verses 5, 6, and 7, you know, those opening verses. He says, man, here's what, I, here's what I hear about you, Philemon. God has changed your life. And not only do you have life group in your home, that's kind of a cool thing, but, you know, what I, what I really hear is that you love people and you are a refreshment to other people. And on the basis of that change, that transformation that God is doing in your life, I want you to transform one more life. I'm going to give you one more life to let that transformation show its maturity and come through. I'm going to send back Onesimus. And by law, you can do this. But by love, here's the choice. Which reality, Philemon, which reality is going to rule your life? And that's the choice we'll make seven days out of this next week, 24 hours out of the next day. That's the choices that we're going to make. Which reality? They're both real. 
Nobody's saying your hurts don't matter. I'm just saying the gospel trumps every single time. Every single time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, Father. What a, what a hard, on the surface, it just looks like a nice little story. And yet, Father, the reality of this is that we begin to change the names and the circumstances. And, Father, we are both Onesimus and we are Philemon. We have been the offended and we have been the offender. Father, we've even been Paul sometimes. We've been trying to be the the peacemaker in the family. Maybe we've been trying to bring two warring parties, offended parties together. Father, we've played these roles out in life. And, Father, there are times that we want the law to rule because that's really simple, clean. And yet, Father, we know that you've provided for us through Christ hope of the gospel. That a wayward daddy of 40 years that the gospel can change his mind and his heart. That a broken relationship for 28 years, Father, that the gospel can change a heart and a mind. Father, I thank you that you do not minimize the abuse that people have suffered. You don't minimize the offense against us in our humanity. You just make much the gospel, Father. And I pray this morning, Father, that's, that that's what a hurt person would really hear this morning, Father. It's not that we're making less of their hurt, but we're making much of you. That we're just making much of you, Father. So we love you, Father. We thank you that, Father, that you hold on to us. That you're like the winds of that hurricane and you swirl around us. And today, Father, we, just, we give you our lives. We give you our offenses as, as well as uh, the, the places in our lives that we've been offended. And, and Father, we thank you for the gospel. And we lift up. Father, I, I think of people. I, Father, I pray for Jeff's parents. I just pray that the gospel will come into their hearts and their lives that the reality that they see in their son will shine Christ's love in life. Father, for others that have have loved ones that are lost, that do not know you, for marriages that are strained and broken, for offenses that maybe that person is gone and they'll never be able to come back and repent and say, I'm sorry, for whatever it is, Father, that today that we would understand that the gospel is supreme, that the work of Christ is finished, and our hope is not on somebody making the right choice. Our hope is found in Christ and Christ alone, Father. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this hope. Now give us the peace that follows the hope of Christ, Father, as we give you our lives this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.